but I, I'm kind of a look, traditional Catholic. I don't like, uh, personally, I'm opposed to abortion, and personally, I'm opposed to the death penalty. I deeply believe, and not just as a matter of politics, but even as a matter of morality, that matters about reproduction and intimacy and relationships and contraception uh, are in the personal realm. They're, they're moral decisions for individuals to make for themselves. And the last thing we need is government intruding into those personal decisions. So I've taken the position, which is quite common among Catholics. I got a personal feeling about abortion, but the right rule for government is to let women make their own decisions. Good gravy, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome to episode three of Paula Dix, the world's only podcast about the U.S. presidential election. Coming to you live from the North Florida Pine Woods, just miles inland from the Emerald Beaches of the Redneck Riviera, I am Jeb Lund, a national affairs correspondent for Rolling Stone. As ever with me from our Auckland, New Zealand news bunker is international correspondent and comedian Tim Batt. Checking Tim, how in. you doing? I'm here. Right. I'm, I exist. I'm just so amped about the vice presidential election. I couldn't be more excited about it. These are the two firecracker characters of this election that I think people are going to be really shocked uh, by what they say. There's going to be a lot of twists and turns, and I can't wait to see what scintillating uh, twist they have in store for us on the national stage for an event that I assume no one will be watching. This is, I mean, in terms of charisma battles, this is pretty much Ric Flair versus, um, you know, Don Juan, I think. Uh, I keep you, forgetting you're a wrestling fan. I'm not, I'm not a WWE guy, but I've got a lot of friends who are. So I can recognize the reference, but not enough to tell what it means. Uh, well, Rick, well, curiously, Ric Flair is in the news. Uh, he was on, I think, a podcast or a radio interview. I know it's his podcast and somebody called in and asked him if he had ever slept with anyone from Hollywood. And he said that he slept with Halle Berry in 1998 after she was coming off, I think, being in BAPS or something like that and uh, and a divorce. Dang. Yeah. So he's that's been around the world. That's a weird thing to climb from the rooftops. He's, well, that's the thing is he's a limousine riding, jet flying, kiss stealing, wheel and dealing son of a gun. Oh, well, there you go. I used to um, get bothered by a person online called uh, Rick Flair Pubic here, and I kind of forgave all the atrocities <laughs> that they would talk about because I thought it was such a good name. Anyway, we're not here to talk about um, falling stars of the WWE. We are here to talk about the US election, and uh, as mentioned, the vice presidential debate is coming up in about uh, 22 hours from when we're recording this right now, Jeb. Um, do you even want to talk about it? Because I feel, much like the rest of this election, I feel like the more interesting stuff is from the two main contenders. But are you going to even be watching it live as it happens? Uh, unfortunately, I can't. I actually am in the North Florida Oak and near the Redneck Riviera, and I have to go home. And it's about a seven-hour drive uh, more when I have to stop with my son and change him and make sure that you know his, he's not getting sore sitting in his, his car seat. Uh, and there's just really no way I can get back there, uh, get back home without missing the debate because, uh, you know, with a little kid, you want to drive when they're asleep and in the middle of the day, he'll just be a, an unholy terror. So yeah. I'm DVRing it. Um, I think, I don't know, I think there'll be a couple sleeper moments. There usually are. Uh, if nothing else, you get that sort of Lloyd Benson moment with Dan Quayle with the, you know, you are no Jack Kennedy. Yeah. There's what people are holding out for, eh? I've heard that clip replayed so much in the last seven days by people just <laughs> wanting something like that to happen. The thing that people forget, though, is that Mike Pence is um, kind of a piece of shit by international <laughs> standards. Because once again, I'm checking in from Auckland here. I represent everyone who is in America um, on, on my side of the podcast, and you're representing all of America. So I hope 
you're ready for that weight of 320 million people on your shoulders. But I've got like almost 6 billion, dude, I think. That's population these days. But um, my assessment from any kind of modern Western country is that Mike Pence is a horrifically right-wing dude who I only really know his name because he got in trouble recently uh, with the religious freedoms legislation. Is it what you guys call it? Yeah. Yeah. If or, you're or, making uh, a cake for a gay couple at a wedding, you're allowed to refuse them? Yes. And the, the sort of the, the religious freedom exemptions are, um, they were originally begun under Bill Clinton in his second term. And they've been, that kind of got used as uh, sort of a Trojan horse to blow up the First Amendment as it applied to anyone who wasn't a Christian in the United States. And so the religious freedom exemptions being, well, I, you, the state cannot coerce me into treating uh, this citizen who is gay with the same regard and privileges that I would treat a, a, a heterosexual citizen. And it's just a very weird perversion of the First Amendment because the idea uh, with so much of it is the idea of being free from coercion yourself means being able to coerce others. So the, the religious freedom exemption as applied to, let's say, um, you know, universities that might have been founded by a, a Christian group, let's say a Catholic university, they can refuse as a condition of your employment to pay out uh, your health care if your health care involves uh, a contraception of any kind. So uh, they, they, they can refuse to pay that portion of it. And so their religious freedom where you have a single institution or it might be, you know, even if it's a small company where you've got one person running it and you've got 25 employees, their religious freedom uh, to from Christianity is uh, in the in the sort of conservative reading of the people like Mike Pence, subservient to Mike Pence's freedom to not have to deal with anybody having rights he doesn't enjoy. Yeah, like. yeah, that's what it boils down. It seems like one of those things where I can almost understand the philosophical argument that um, the religious groups are making, but the application of it is so nonsensical and just like on the face of it stupid and kind of harmful and hurtful that it, it the whole thing seems a bit ridiculous now mike pence he is he the current governor of indiana if i got that right yes and he was involved in the legislation it got signed in under him and then there was a massive hoopla about it where companies started pulling out of the state and there was a huge basically financial threat uh, that was this big cloud that hung over the state and some did i think and then he was forced to kind of walk back his own legislation is if i understood that roughly correctly yeah he did a he did a 180 on it um it's been a while i, I wrote a thing about this at the guardian and i wish i i, I didn't think well i should bone up on that uh, so i hey, apologize well, for not being clear but look you've already done the work everybody else can go google jeb blunt guardian mike pence and you'll be able to find that and the only thing that i know about tim kane is that uh he speaks spanish and mm-hmm. he's very catholic and he's a member of a african-american catholic church and that is about it and the other the other tim kane news is that the republican a couple of republican officials i'm trying to sean spicer um I don't even remember what Sean Spicer's role is at this point. I really should just keep Wikipedia open. Actually, everybody at home, keep Wikipedia open. But Fact check us. Yes, I did. I screwed up twice last week, and I'm, I'm very embarrassed. But uh, I'm not going to tell anybody. You can go find. Maybe there's more. <laughs> and, um, but uh, he, he retweeted a thing saying, you know, this is a, the Republican Willie Horton style ad against Tim Kaine. 
And the Willie Horton ad, I don't know if any anybody remembers, certainly our international audience wouldn't, but in 1988, uh, uh, Messrs. Uh, Lee Atwater and Roger Ailes featured a mugshot of this guy, Willie Horton, who, uh, while on work furlough from prison uh, in Massachusetts, which was then, uh, which was Governor Dukakis's uh, state, he committed a a rape and assault. And uh, God, at this point, I don't remember the rest. Um, But so they ran a grainy mugshot of him and these, these very ominous ads, which basically played right into, if you elect this Democrat, they're going to let black thugs out on the streets to rape all your women and break into your home. And so there was this this style ad about Tim Kaine that while he was an attorney, he defended murderers on death row. And the thing is, Tim Kaine is an, an extremely devout Catholic, and that's why he does not believe in capital punishment. So he was doing it he was he he was defending these people as an a, an expression of his faith and so what's sort of funny and a kind of paradox if you find these things funny is that the republican party is attacking this guy for the strength of his faith by trying to turn it into a racial um terror is it not also true that as a lawyer your faith just rests in the legal system and you represent whoever is sort of bestowed upon you one way or another because you believe that both sides should have the best representation that is possible you'd hope but i mean there are obviously i you know there are like in any profession there are people who don't believe in anything anymore um and i know a lot of i know people who work as public defenders uh, or have worked as public defenders who you know see a system in which there is systemic inequality in terms of the the access to resources that uh defendants have in the criminal justice system uh so i i you know, Kane would have had the the ability, uh, and a lot of a lot of people who do work on these cases, they're in. Uh, they can take a, a step out of their normal practice and do these things pro bono as an expression of right, right. their political conviction. Because in many cases, you know, these these high profile clients will not have resources if they rely on the public defender system. So you have people from more affluent firms do it, putting in their their pro bono hours per year gotcha. to take these on. So yep. it becomes much more of an endorsement when you choose to do these things rather than they ju- they're just falling into your lap as assignment sure. from the, 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 uh, the court. Sure, sure. Um, probably one of the only bits of controversy that I've seen at all about Tim Kaine um, since he was uh, put forward as the VP pick for Hillary Clinton was right when that announcement came. And uh, there were a lot of um, feminists who were very angry uh because he was sort of such a moderate in particular. But there were some cool quotes that got pulled out where um, he's had to thread the needle big time about uh, sort of marrying up what his political position is uh, on the rights of abortion, considering that he is ostensibly, yeah, as you say, quite a devout Catholic. And he, I can't remember what the forum was if he was on like a meet the press or something like that, but he was asked asked about it. And he did say, he said, look, personally, um, I don't agree with this, but my role as a public official is not a personal one. It is to represent the will of the party that I'm a part of and the people who have elected me. And therefore, um, you know, his voting record, he's got, I think, an A plus or 100% or whatever the kind of perfect score is from, um, oh, what's it called? From uh, your version of family planning? What's it called? Uh, Planned Parenthood. Planned Parenthood, yeah. Yeah. So like his voting record's pretty pretty crystal clear, but his kind of personal convictions are um 
a little different. And I quite like the fact that he has managed to separate the two things out, you know, the job and what he, what he personally believes. I actually think that's a cool thing. Yeah, it's, it, yeah, and to go back to the Mike Pence thing, we call that the First Amendment. Yeah. <laughs> um, but it, and the other thing, too, it, you know, that that's a view that's consonant with a lot of people in America, because when you pull them on abortion, you'll ask them, do they think abortion is right? And they'll say no. But do you think that abortion should be outlawed? And they say no. And so they can have a moral distaste for it and still see the necessity for the lives of, of uh, you know, for the lives of people who are not themselves. Yeah. Project a little empathy or at least, you know, understand that not everybody's going to be in the exact same circumstances. It's because it's not a, like a cool thing to think about and it's not a, a big sexy political topic. Um, excuse the irony. Anywho, so the, the vice presidential debate, that'll be like moments away from when you hear this. Maybe it's already been. Maybe there was a big moment and we're um, completely wrong. Like I've been proved in the polls so far about uh, on the first episode when I said that I thought Trump would uh, probably win. But I don't know yet. If there was one thing to look for, if you are going to watch the debate, it would be to see if Pence throws Trump under the bus at all. Because one of the theories that a lot of people have about Pence taking the VP gig, and it's a thankless gig, even under normal circumstances, but even Mm. more so with Trump, is that he wants to position himself four years hence as the guy who did everything he could for the party and everything he could for the voters. And that he wasn't an establishment candidate who looked aside when the voters who supported Trump said, who will be our VP? So so you're thinking close... he's going to come out aggressively as an attack dog and really try and get some hits against Trump through Pence? You would, I mean, if that's true, right? It, you know, it, it, well, I guess, I mean, the, the bigger question and, and would be to what degree does he duck something that's so clearly only Donald Trump's problem? Where, you know, if he's, if they're talking about something, you know, how do you respond to, Donald Trump saying this, if he says, well, you know, I think Donald Trump can explain that. However, in my position, I would. And he has a different answer. You know, it's going to be that might be evidence of how he plans to sort of tack when he does this in four years uh, and to see how opportunistic he's being. Because Kane really, I mean, his job is to prop up Hillary Clinton. You're not going to see him going out and flying his own flag, except in terms of speaking Spanish fluently. Uh, yeah, to sort of sell the whole ticket. But Pence has incentive to not be the uh, Trump's company man entirely. Right. So we'll see if yeah. he does a little tap dance, which okay, could be fun. Cool. Good to know. And of course, that um, haunted sounding clock that was sounding uh, behind <laughs> you there, Jeb, does indicate that this portion of the podcast <laughs> is hereby finished. We'll be back in just a sec. Bush and Dukakis on crime. Bush supports the death penalty for first-degree murderers. Dukakis not only opposes the death penalty, he allowed first-degree murderers to have weekend passes from prison. One was Willie Horton, who murdered a boy in a robbery, stabbing him 19 times. Despite a life sentence, Horton received 10 weekend passes from prison. Horton fled, kidnapped a young couple, stabbing the man and repeatedly raping his girlfriend. Weekend prison passes. Dukakis on crime. And you're back with Politics, featuring uh, two people who are respectively carrying the weight of America and the rest of the world on their shoulders as we look to this presidential election taking place in, Jeb, I want to say 33 days, is that roughly correct? I I can't count anymore. I, cool. Um, it's about you know, that. 
it's, it's, it's like the, it's like short timers in Vietnam, right? You know, you don't want to know how many days you have left. Um, cool. exactly. I feel like 30, 33 sounds good, though. It's, it's November 8th. Um, that sounds about right. Now, there has been a huge story, which is broken on the New York Times, uh, that in 1995, Donald J. Trump um, managed to declare a loss to the IRS of $913 million that year, which is a tax loss that he uh, they assume he was able to carry forward into future years, which would have meant, uh, by their estimations, he avoided paying any income tax for up to 18 years. This discovery was made based on an anonymous tip that came through to the New York Times in snail mail. Uh, if anyone remembers that, there were a couple pages that were sent through to a reporter um, who obtained it, went through it with some tax experts, and they ran it up the flagpole. Um, it's a really interesting story, one that's getting a lot of talk at the moment. And one aspect that I just want to remind people of that no one's sort of mentioning is that $913 million is a lot of money, but that was in 1995. I just went on a little inflation calendar before, and in today's money, it's over $1.4 billion that he declared as a loss. Um, now, Jeb, this is a bit where uh, I'll, I'll show my hand. I actually used to work for the New Zealand tax department briefly, so I don't have Bastard. like... I don't have an intimate... No, it's patriotic. It's good. <laughs> Building roads and hospitals and whatever other shit is out there. Treading on other people. No. <laughs> Did you not see the snake on the flag? Did you not, sir? That, that, I'm not going to get into this with you. I'm not going to fall into the <laughs> trap, man. I'm not going to take the bait. But um, what I will say is that uh, from my couple of years at Inland Revenue, I didn't, I don't have a particularly like specialist knowledge on everything, but I've got just like a very broad understanding of how the tax system works that um, I didn't have before I got in there, which is good. I think mm. a lot of people who are regular um, salary and wage earners, particularly outside of the States, because I feel like you guys have to do a lot more to do with your taxes than in other countries. A lot of people don't even really know um, how it works for big businesses or self-employed people but essentially there's a system where um, if you as a business or you're like a self-employed person that basically for tax purposes gets treated as a business if you make um, a loss which seems redundant if you if you essentially lose money in one year um, under most tax systems you are able to take that loss and carry it forward into the next year. So say for example if you lose $100,000 in 2015 and then you make $100,000 profit in 2016 you carry that forward, that loss forward so that you don't have to pay any tax. It just cancels itself out and you're at zero. This isn't something that salary and wage regular earners can do. Um, it's something so that uh, basically a, a business can kind of exist on a wider cycle than just year to year and make decisions um, over a longer term uh, what if, if Donald Trump has pulled this off and it's still not exactly everyone's assuming this is true first of all and a lot of that is coming from the fact that the Trump camp have not denied any portion of the reporting or the story so far but neither have they confirmed it and the bits of paper that have been put forward so far don't definitively prove that that was the final tax return that was filed in 1995. But based on how everyone from the Trump camp is acting, it seems pretty safe to assume that if this isn't the absolute truth, it's very, very close to it. Um, now, I've been doing a little bit of reading around uh, certain opinion pieces, and I, I just this afternoon read 
quite a good, succinct blog piece by a guy who used to work for the Australian uh, tax office. Um, and Bastard. He was, he's a good guy. Stop doing it, Jeb. It's a cheap <laughs> shot. He, uh, he, he worked um, in an office that dealt with tax avoidance. And he's got some theories that um, Donald J. Trump, based on our understanding of his finances and him as a businessman, it doesn't match up that he would be able to have a $900 million loss personally that he could incur to carry forward. Usually, if you had such a tremendous loss in in a year like that you would have to declare bankruptcy which clears the debt legally it cleans the slate but what that also does is it means you can't claim it as a loss on your tax return so for him to be able to shoulder a 900 million dollar loss in the year 1995 suggests one of two possibilities that he's put forward and i'll put a link to this in the um description of this episode so you can read this a bit for yourself and apologies in advance if i get a a little bit wrong there's two options here this is great keep going um number one uh is that we we do what we understand about Trump's finances is is quite different to the reality that the numbers that he was dealing with back in the mid 90s were a lot bigger and he somehow was able to shoulder that 900 million dollars the other suggestion which appears to be a little more likely is that he's found some sort of tax avoidance scheme whereby he's likely parked the debt um into a sheltered trust or an offshore uh organization of some kind that's been formed like a shell company so what that would be is a scheme where it might work in a way where he can claim the loss in that year in his irs tax return for 900 million dollars and then sells all of that debt for one dollar to a shell company that exists and then that debt is just parked there in that uh whatever that structure is which then never tries to recoup the debt it just sits there ad infinitum and that is one way in which um, Trump could have avoided paying taxes. He still gets to keep that big loss on his tax returns to carry forward that he can put against his income tax in future years when he does get a profit. Um, but he also doesn't have to repay the actual debt that he's incurred at any point. So what that would mean is he's actually screwing a lot of people out of pocket and the country's missing out as well. And he's getting 100% of the benefits um, without having to deal with any of the ramifications that you usually have to. Um, so it's it's tricky because Trump obviously hasn't released his tax return and now we're starting to get a more defined picture on why that's the case. So it still is speculation, but this is looking like an increasingly likely picture of what has happened with his business empire. And now I'm going to take a drink of water. <laughs> well, I think my question would be, and my first question and. Really, after after digesting all of this, is who do you think mailed the tax returns to the New York Times? What I kind th- of person within the? Well, okay, I should I should clarify here really quickly, yeah. and so you can you can take another sip of water. Um, <laughs> supposedly, the envelope that appeared in the New York Times had the return address of Trump Tower. Yeah, uh, which and, and this was it was really funny because you could watch political Twitter, you know, the sort of DC. New York Twitter uh, journalists go crazy with this when the story broke and it came from inside Trump Tower and it was really hard to be like, listen, motherfuckers, you realize anybody can write anything they want on an envelope. I I assume it's a joke and I thought everyone knew that, right? Like that's the goof. That's the punchline, surely. 
Yeah. And, and I, I mean, if nothing else, right. And so that was actually, I mean, you, you stole my thing was, I was going to say it was just somebody I mean, with, with a group of people as paranoid as the uh, Trump's fans are and the Trump organization seems to be. I mean, there's this very Nixonian quality of like, this guy has betrayed us. Just the idea that somebody put the return address on there and you could send them on a hunt for a mole that did not exist. Yeah, <laughs> it's probably true. Um, that was, I mean, that seems to be the, the most fun thing. Like James yeah, Jesus definitely. Angleton tearing apart the CIA looking for remaining Soviet spies that aren't there. You know, just yeah. sort of Trump on, you know, this sort of 3 a.m. when he's not tweeting at 3 a.m. and the phone call isn't through there and he's not queuing up a sex tape. He's just sort of stalking the marble halls looking <laughs> for somebody who could be lurking behind a brass or gold fixture. It wouldn't shock me to hear that he was walking around in some sort of satin gold laced bathrobe around his own towers looking for the perpetrator. Um, to answer the original question a little more seriously, it, so look, realistically it has to be someone who had access to um, his tax records, which would suggest that it was an accountant or an auditor, right? And in an organisation in an empire as vast as Trump's, that's actually going to be like quite a few people, not, not like hundreds or anything, but, and I'm just guessing here, but I would estimate at least dozens of people would have access um, to the tax return, uh, yeah, if, if they were looking over it or forming the original assessment. So my suspicion is that it's probably someone who has worked either as an auditor or an accountant for the, um, the Trump empire and uh, didn't like him and can see how close he's getting to becoming president and decided to do something about it. That would be my estimation. Does that sound sort of sensible to you, Jed? Yeah, or, or I mean, you could expand it even, you know, let's say one of those uh, those accountants or attorneys who would have access to these documents has, uh, you know, an executive assistant or secretary or receptionist with a big bottom. And Donald Trump has come in and insulted her appearance and said, you know, you got to get rid of this lady. You know, who can look at her? You know, and, and this this woman sees the way he behaves toward everyone who is not named his daughter, uh, who happens to have well, female Well, including anatomy. his daughter in, in some ways, actually. Yeah. And, and just says, well, you know what? I, I know exactly where that file cabinet is. I know exactly where the key to it is. And I know where the office copier is. Screw that guy. Yeah, I guess uh, it's possible. I mean, tax records are treated um, very, very, very securely and secretly. Like the, the, the most interesting thing that I found about working in the tax department here in New Zealand is how insane the laws treat tax records. Um, and the kind of powers that are afforded to a revenue service within a country. Like, it's it's pretty crazy. There are certain divisions in inland revenue, and I'm sure this is probably the same in America and other Western countries as well, like Australia and probably Britain and anywhere else, whereby there's a, a, a special division that basically processes taxes for people like drug dealers or anyone that's getting illegal earnings, and they're completely barred from passing any of that information over to the police. Because essentially, as a society, we value getting the money out of those people to contribute to the society they live in more than sort of jeopardizing that revenue stream by passing that information on to the cops. And some drug dealers who are really smart will file um, tax returns because if they do get stung, that's one really big charge that can be brought against them, which they can then avoid if they've actually been filing returns. Yeah, that's how they got Capone. 
Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Yeah. So, um, yeah, I, I, I don't know if I buy into the secretary <coughs> thing. I just think the security of records, especially dating back that far, suggests to me that it's someone um, a little bit higher up. I think it must have been someone who was working with the actual records. And I think it's kind of interesting that the records still exist. Like, I'm not sure what the requirements are for um, the handling of documents in the States, but in New Zealand, pretty much anything after seven years no longer needs to be kept. And, um, yeah, it's it's kind of interesting that someone had that lying around to be able to send to the Times in the first instance. I mean, the other possibility is that it's someone at the IRS, but I really doubt that. I, I really don't think that... It, and I, I think as well, and sorry again for putting, putting a big question mark over this, but I'm pretty sure the form um, which was scanned and sent to the Times wasn't the final tax return either. I think it was like an original um, assessment calculation that was being made. So, uh, yeah. Yeah, I wouldn't know anything. Oh, there's that clock again. Oh, good. Well, that, that must mean that it's time to <laughs> curtail this segment as well. But... Well, I, um, I, no, I was going to say I had two things. Well, one, you know, I have no idea what that form looks like either because in 1995 I was filing out the filling out the easy form from working retail at the the outlet mall. Oh yeah, um, yeah, yeah. But I, I, there there might be some regulations that keep those documents relevant if they've been part of any kind of pending um, uh, litigation. And Trump is so litigious, he might have kept his his uh, filings relevant. Yeah, that's longer true. Than and he could have artificially extended that sort of uh, statute of limitations, for lack of a better term. And I know that the IRS have formed certain tax agreements with Trump in the past as well. As well. I think the period 2004 to 2008 comes into my head. I was reading recently that basically the IRS formed an arrangement with him. Um, and that can mean anything. That can mean that there's a dispute over the amount of tax that should be paid and then they just kind of arrive at some sort of settlement or... Um, yeah, but th- uh, uh, when you're dealing with that kind of complicated tax structures that I'm sure he would have set up for that amount of money and in such a diverse bunch of places, especially real estate's always really weird to deal with. Um, there's there's probably a lot of people shifting a lot of money around and sometimes it's it's a lot more beneficial for a revenue department to try and reach a settlement figure than actually go through with a fine tooth comb and try and catch them out when they can finance really high priced lawyers and accountants to defend everything. But it's interesting and in terms of public opinion this actually seems to be something that is finally sticking to Trump. Um, The early indications are that this is resonating not hugely but a little bit um, with the voting public and at the moment, uh, the all of the polls are going in the wrong direction for Trump, and not in a mm-hmm. dramatically speedy fashion. But they are his numbers are certainly starting to drop. Um, if you look at it, sort of across the whole country. Yeah, and, and it's funny to watch some of the never Trumps or the on the fence about Trumps or the probably better term is hack opportunists comment on this. Uh, Eric Erickson, uh, a uh, uh, Another one of those sort of Christian dominionists uh, from Red State, and he yeah, was also featured on CNN. Um, he hosts CPAC as well, doesn't he? Isn't he like the head of it? No, no, no. CPAC is usually, uh, oh, fuck. well, it's the American Conservatives Union does it, and their president does it. So for the longest time, it was Al Cardenas, and then I don't remember who did it this year. Um, but it, so Erickson made the comment that in, you know, in 2012, we were, the Republicans were being knocked and, and and coping with the fact that Mitt Romney had written off 
essentially half the country for not paying taxes. Mm. So these people were not doing their, these people were not involved in the process. They didn't have skin in the game. They were dismissed. And now you have the same sort of operatives going on TV and saying the fact that Donald Trump didn't pay taxes or likely didn't pay taxes doesn't mean anything. And I'm kind of inclined to agree with them. I think the numbers will will dip, but I think that you're going to still see the same kind of core um, demographic conservative voters aren't really going to run away from that because uh, there's a great line from John Steinbeck from the Great Depression talking about why um, socialism never took off in the United States. And he said, because Americans like to think of themselves as temporarily embarrassed millionaires. <laughs> it's great. <laughs> and and you, you get that a lot with conservative voters. So that, you know, you for all the people, the hardworking people who are paying into the system, not only payroll taxes, but they're doing sales taxes and fees on their local level, all these sort of transactional taxes that are way more aggressive and actually take way more of a bite out of their you know, quality of life relative to their income yeah. uh, than Donald Trump's taxes do to, do to him. Uh, you know, there is this sort of attitude that well, if I were in his place, I would use all the great uh, accountants and resources at my disposal not to pay taxes either. So that's his right, and he earned it. And, and do you know what? Uh, sorry to interject as well, but I sure. think that that is the way to spin it, and I think that's what differentiates this from the 47% comment that Mitt Romney made and all of that talk about makers versus takers in America, mm-hmm. the people who are creating the capital versus the people who are living off the teat of the uh, of the system is that, um, and Rudy Giuliani actually is the first person who I've managed to see nail this messaging in any kind of um, effective way when he was talking to Chuck Todd on Meet the Press this week, is that he put forward the, he, he was basically just saying, look, not only was what Trump did legal, but it was actually his responsibility as his role in the organisation to maximise profitability and to use any legal means to do so. If he doesn't do that, then he is not fulfilling his obligation to the shareholders, and he can actually be done for that. So it's not just a case that he didn't break the law, but he did everything that he was supposed to do in that role, um, which is to make a shitload of money. And I think that's that's actually an argument that people can take away and understand and makes a lot of sense intuitively to voters. Um, And it's unfortunate that Trump doesn't have the focus to be able to kind of stay on something with that kind of singularity. He, he, he will always get distracted by either the messenger or some other thing that's been put in there. But if he was able to actually put the blinkers on for a bit, I think that he could execute that same message that Rudy Giuliani has on his behalf as well. And it would actually diffuse some of the sting out of this. Well, he did, and he has actually, because he's been knocked over and over for his Trump ties, which are made in China and, mm. and other places that uh, he's he, he's shipping jobs overseas. And he said, you know, uh, I think it was Letterman who needle, uh, yeah, needled yeah. him yeah. about where his tie was manufactured. And Trump's repost to that was, I have an obligation to get the best prices. You know, if we had laws that outlawed my doing this, I would absolutely comply with them. But since since the blinkered people in Congress on both the left and right have permitted this, I would be fool not to take care of it, and I have an ethical obligation to do that. But in some cases, and I'm not sure which ones apply, he was talking about things that were not publicly traded companies. He didn't have shareholders. 
Right, so they were private companies, which is a different different thing. Yeah, I've not seen which companies are listed on that filing and, you know, who were... Uh, you know who were members of those companies, who had invested in those companies. Because if it's just a matter of him and a partner, or him and his family, or him and the Trump Corporation, which is, or you know Trump whatever LLC that he establishes, he has no obligation then except to himself or maybe a partner that he can go and and, and speak to. So I, I don't, you know, I haven't, so, I don't speak tax law, so I yeah. haven't sat and looked at who all is listed on that. But that could just be that could be BS as much as anything else. Well. Real briefly, um, before we move on from this, I'm pretty sure that the filing whistle was a personal one, and that relates to a feature of the American tax system that um, most corporations and companies are treated as, and I forget the terminology, but I think it's called a look-through, whereby the losses get part, they can be passed on to people in the organization, so people at the very top of them. Um, we actually have a slightly different way of treating it in New Zealand whereby all of our companies are their own entities and so the losses just get incurred by that legally existing entity um, but with America I think uh, with with the tax system that you guys have you can actually extract those losses out and, and attribute it to people so it was probably um, losses from a whole bunch of different companies, a whole bunch of different organisations if I've understood this correctly that then all lands back onto Trump's personal filing which I think is where the big this is where the big issue is and on That's that mess. on that questioning note because we don't have it right in front of us um We'll take a brief break and then uh, check a couple of other small issues before we get pumped up for this vice presidential debate, the most exciting moment of the year, surely. Now, people have a hard time understanding how taxes work. If Donald Trump hadn't taken those losses, he could have been sued by his investors, he could have been sued by his business partners. He. When I run a business, and I run a business, if I don't take advantage yeah. of the five deductions that are available to me, even even if you think those deductions are unfair, then I violated my fiduciary duty. So I, I have clients, and okay. I have clients that take losses like that, and I, I, I advise them, you have to take those losses. Otherwise, you're not doing your job. But- Welcome back to politics and to Act Three. And if you saw a gun on the wall in the first act, it has already gone off. Uh, my name is Jeb <laughs> Lund. I am joined again by Tim Bat. And uh, for the sake of balance, because I believe in the the Beltway narrative of both sides do it, I thought we would talk a little bit about something else that happened this week. Uh, another sort of leaked document that I think ultimately will not have a lot of impact on uh, the core voters for Hillary Clinton. So you might have seen this. Uh, a Clinton conversation to donors after uh, the loss in New Hampshire was leaked by Politico and had a very kind of scary headline, or at least what, what the Clinton camp viewed as a very damaging headline. And uh, they have a direct quote here where she's uh, she's talking about the, the two things facing the country. And she talks about, on one hand, populist, nationalist, xenophobic, discriminatory approach. We hear too much from the Republican candidates. And then she goes on. And on the other side, there's just a deep desire to believe that we can have free college, free health care, that what we've done hasn't gone far enough, and that we just need to, you know, go as far as, you know, Scandinavia, whatever that means. And half the people don't know what that means, but it's something that they deeply feel. And initially, this was sort of viewed by the media and by Sanders supporters as confirmation that deep down Hillary Clinton had this native contempt for uh, uh, the Bernie uh, the Bernie crowd that she'd always tried to hide. And, you know, it was sort of, it was an indication that 
ultimately she was a deceitful centrist. And if you read the the phrasing, it is pretty damaging. The the, the line a bit uh, about go as far as you know Scandinavia, whatever that means, because it's such a dismissive tone, almost like a dad saying, "Well, my kid's gotten into uh, social democracy, whatever that means." Um, Wasn't there and, a bit about them living in their mom's basements as well? There was actually, and I, I, so what I wanted to do was read the full quote after that, but. Um, sure. I mean, it was so dismissive, and and you know, I remember I remember reading this because this excerpt alone was this the the screenshot that sort of went across social media, and thinking, well, that's insane because whatever that means, you know, you, you were a kid of the '60s, Madam Secretary, and the the Scandinavian social democracy model was something that people were were agitating for then. Uh, you know, Harry Truman, FDR and Harry Truman pushed for universal uh, single payer health care. So did Ted Kennedy in the in the 70s. So this is not this pie in the sky thing you've never heard of before, where you're going, whatever that means, screwball kids these days, I don't know where they get this stuff. And then when you see the actual full context, it's, um, it's quite a bit better. So I'm just going to go ahead and read all of this. But if you haven't heard it before, I, mean, I, think, I think this is important. And I don't consider it my job to rehabilitate Hillary Clinton. She has an entire team of people who are paid more than I will ever earn in a lifetime to do that. Um, but the, the fuller quote, and the, 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 whatever that means is taken out of this. But she says, uh, some are new to politics completely. They're children of the Great Recession, and they're living in their parents' basement. They feel they got their education and the jobs that are available to them are not at all what they envision for themselves and they don't see much of a future. I met with a group of young black millennials today and you know, one of the women said, you know, none of us feel like we have the job that we should have gotten out of college and we don't believe the job market is going to give us much of a chance. And she goes on. So that is a mindset that is really affecting their politics. And if, and so if you're feeling like you're consigned to being a barista or some other job that doesn't pay a lot and doesn't have some other ladder of opportunity attached to it, then the idea that maybe, just maybe, you could be part of a political revolution is pretty appealing. So I think we should all be really understanding of that and should try to do the best that we, we can not to be, you know, a wet blanket on idealism. You want people to be idealistic. You want them to set big goals but to take what we can achieve now and try to present them as bigger goals. And so this is, I mean... Holy uh, shit, that is some real selective decontextualization by the media. It is like the inverse of what was reported. I'm shocked. I'm shocked that the news told me something that wasn't entirely within context. (laughs) I can't... (laughs) This is a very Claude Rains moment for you, but... (laughs) Now I've seen it all. This election cycle truly does deliver everything. But I think this this makes for a nice mirror with the Trump thing, because at no point has Trump said anything other than he's a canny businessman and he's going to get away with whatever he can get away with. And you're a fool if you pay more than you have to. Uh, you're a fool if you, you don't maximize your profits. And so the New York Times and the left wants to bust him for, well, you perhaps 100 percent legally did not pay taxes because you had resources available to you to find ways to not pay your taxes. And the Trump response is going to be some very Trumpian variation of, well, duh. And, and the Clinton thing... Which where, is a know, great got, counter. We, we don't yeah. need to acknowledge that. If, you know, if, if it gets brought up in the third debate again, I think he might go for the full, well, doy. <laughs> and just really drag that one out. But... Uh, 
you know, the Clinton thing is what they're knocking her for. And the really key is the last line. You don't want to be a blanket on idealism. You want people to be idealistic, but you want them to set big goals and to take what we can achieve now and present them as bigger. And that's been her campaign mantra since Bernie Sanders became a thing. Not that what his end game is, is wrong necessarily, but what his end game is, is not practically achievable within one cycle or two cycles. But in the meantime, there are things that we can do that fit with that fit with a progressive agenda and actually do better the lives of young people, et cetera. And what we need to do is make those attractive. And so what people are trying to do is bust her for something that she has essentially said on the stump over and over and over again. Yeah. And it actually sounds like she's attempting in that fuller quote to defend a more cynical reading of Bernie's supporters against the very view that she's kind of had cast on her by the reporting of the story which is ironic and interesting and um sucks to be her <laughs> well and, but it and, sort of fits into this wider political narrative of her being this um centrist that's completely cynical about um yeah sort of the the progressive agenda that bernie's been putting forward and, it, you know, it, so the other thing you have in, in Politico as a follow-up is Bernie saying, well, you know, the leaked comments are absolutely correct. Now, he uses it to talk more about the impetus behind his political revolution and the ferment that there are that there is among young, spe- young people. Hmm. Uh, but it, at no point does he say that what she said was irresponsible, unkind. It maligned my supporters. It shows a lack of understanding of people's concerns. It's a cynical breach of the public trust. Because, again, this guy was campaigning against her for months, and he heard this again and again and again. Yeah. You can't ding someone for a leaked tape in which they disclose <laughs> in a more florid form what they've already said ad nauseum. And this actually sticks up as well with... Um the kind of Obama and how do you say what's the adjective for Obama? Obamarinian? Obama that I've always heard him articulate is wanting to uh, get the ball further down the field and the speed may be frustrating at which you can achieve that but you always just want to be heading in the right direction no matter how much of a slog it is which seems to be what she's saying in not so many words as well yeah, and the, in, there's a really good interview with him uh, by Jonathan Chait in New York Magazine. I apologize to, for sending anybody to read John Chait. Uh, this is the one exception. I promise it won't happen again. Uh, is he a bad man, Jeb? He's a... Uh, he's tur- there are a lot of things wrong with John Chait, but the most obvious one in the last year is he's turned into a curdled old dad about these these pc kids are going entirely too far why why can't we just sit around and all be centrists together doesn't anybody care about the carried interest return you know and just yeah just sort of he's 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 always had a tendency to punch left and to beat up hippies for mainstream credibility and he's just that tendency in him uh, that merry-go-round has hit about a million rpms in the last year and he's pretty insufferable but it's it, it, just it, the interview with Obama has Obama articulating a lot of what you said uh, was his aim which is you know find what find what is achievable here and mm. begin momentum and uh, you know and don't sort of you know don't don't basically make um, don't make per- the perfect the enemy of the good essentially nice before we go 
um, Alicia Machado is the Miss Universe Miss Universe winner from uh, mm. Venezuela uh, who won in the 90s and there's been a lot of reporting about um, Trump calling her Miss Piggy and uh, Miss Housekeeping which was the charges that got levelled at Trump by Clinton during the first debate and there's been a lot of back and forth and it actually turned into kind of like quite an interesting story because it turns out that uh, Ms Machado has a um a pretty checkered past as a lot of people do and she had this really interesting back and forth with Anderson Cooper on CNN um, where he said did, did you once like get accused of assisting in a in a murder right it was like driving the getaway car or something she was like look we've all got our history it was a long time ago <laughs> which I found kind of interesting but um, have you seen that clip no I'll pop that in it's a, bloody, it's a pearler it's super interesting um, Donald Trump then came out <laughs> tweeting in the middle of the night uh, at 3am I think his local time saying that uh, she's disgusting and there's a sex tape that it, we should all go look up that has her on it which it, there's varying reports on whether that actually exists or not I think there's been a sex tape that's been kind of miscredited as her being in it but at any rate this seems to be a story that's fizzling out um, more and more by the second so that probably doesn't warrant too much of a comment which it seems like uh, Hillary's Clinton uh, Hillary comments um, about the Bernie supporters that you were just talking about in a fuller context seems to be doing as well. So there's a couple of things that have flared up over the last couple of days which don't seem that they'll have a lasting impact at all. Um, But, you know, good to sell a few more papers in this election cycle. One thing I did see, and I I don't know what the source was, and it would be interesting, since we've already encouraged listeners so many times to just go to Google and figure it out for themselves... And I, I appreciate you asking me a detail about the uh, the Machado thing, so I could say I also don't know about that either. Uh, but <laughs> I saw a, a really interesting graph of, of Google Analytics going back to I think 2005. And if you look at all the Trump surrogates who were uh, trying to assassinate uh, Machado's character in the media, and you look at her uh, in terms of Google Analytics, she has far more uh, resonance to uh, at least the search engine than they do. Now, that could be, I mean, obviously there's a distortion effect there because one of of Trump's surrogates is Rudy Giuliani. And and in the early 2000s, there probably weren't very many people who didn't know who he was. But she had a successful career in Spanish language television. And so she has a lot of resonance with exactly the sort of voters that Trump is going to lose. So he's going after another person that these voters might identify with. I mean, I, I for what? <laughs> well, my reading of it was that he's doubling down onto the conservatives to make sure that they come out and vote. That was my reading of that tweet. But then again, who the fuck knows when it comes to Trump? Like, he legitimately might have just had a thought and typed it out and then sent it and kind of forgot he was running for president. Because that <laughs> seems to be a little bit of the operati- uh, the modus operandi of this campaign so far. We'll just have to wait and see. Um, there's one question I want to ask you before we go, Jeb, and that is, do you... L- let, me, let me let me stop you right there. I okay, don't go. know. Everyone go look it up. <laughs> <laughs> no, this isn't something you can look up because this is the prediction question. Um, okay. Do you put any stock in the rumor that Trump is going to pull out of one or both of the remaining uh, scheduled debates? I don't know how much stock I put in it. Would I be surprised? No. I would think that he would do the next one, and then if he loses in that, I'm sure he would be able to fixate on some aspect of the debate, probably the moderator, probably the kind of questions, and say that a further debate would be 
just as slanted and distortionate as the previous two, and then probably distract from things by announcing a major event. I was surprised that he was complimentary immediately after uh, the debate when he when he was asked about Lester Holt's questions, and he did so abysmally that I thought really the next day he would pull a ridiculous stunt. Yeah, but I don't he would, think he. I think this is one of those things where he does have a distorted sense of reality. I don't think he had any scope of how badly he did in the immediate aftermath of the event, and I think it was only as he started to see the commentary roll in that he needed to find some scapegoats, which is why you're dead right. When he first came off that debate stage, he was asked point blank, how did he think Lester Holt did? And he said, mm-hmm. fine. And then I think he was on Fox and Friends and they asked him again like a day later and he, he said, oh, you know, um, I would give Lester a, a C. Well, And the other thing that might make this kind of irrelevant, that one of the complaints he had once he sort of started saying, well, Lester Holt gets a C, this was horribly managed. Uh, One of the complaints he made repeatedly was they did not ask me, Lester Holt did not ask me about Benghazi. He did not ask me about the emails. He did not ask me about, I I think it was a third thing. Um, And what his handlers or advisors, I'm sure, have drilled into him since then is if you want that raised at a debate, Mm. you don't wait for the question, you bring it up. And then then you're going to get a rebuttal from Clinton and then that's going to be reason to keep hammering because she's going to give you more material or Lester Holt or whomever uh, you know whomever has asked you the question is then probably going to have a follow-up if you tack into Benghazi and email territory so you know and this is sort of a uh, you know it, it's a paradox that Trump is presents himself as this sort of type A personality. And when it came to the debate, he just sat back and waited for his talking points to be handed to him. But Which if he does probably take what that he's up, used to. A man who yeah. exists solely like these days, just going on Fox, that's probably exactly, yeah, what he's used to. And, and the, the Republican primary debates gave him a very distorted sense of how these things go because mm. the moderators were trying to hit every single candidate. And so there wasn't a lot of amount of time when you did need to recede into the background. And then they would ask you something pertinent to your interests. And then these other guys scrabbling for attention would generate crosstalk and try to pick fights with him. And then he could bring up what he wanted. In this case, he was sort of waiting and not really realizing that he had to now perform the same function that something someone like Rubio or Christie did, which is jump in, interject, and try to take control of a topic. And I think maybe that kind of collided with his sense of that's beneath me, perhaps. Or maybe he just, he very clearly did not prep very much for the debate. So maybe that didn't sink in that he needed to seize the opportunity. But if he does in this next one, and he gets to actually change the tone of it, the idea that he would skip the third might be completely off the table because he's not going to do near, I don't think he's going to do as badly. He would do badly compared to, I think, a regular, a conventional candidate, but I don't think he can implode to that same degree. Well, let's find out. We don't have to wait long because that debate is on the 9th of October and it will be uh, moderated by Anderson Cooper himself, speaking of. That's the Silver Fox. St. Louis. He is a good-looking man. Um, the vice presidential debate, if anyone gives a shit, is Tuesday night. Uh, I'm going to try and watch it because it's on in the afternoon for me, so it's a good a good time zone. I'm pretty sure I've got the free time. So try and find some stream somewhere, and uh, we'll have a chat after that. But thanks very much for talking with me again, Jeb, clearing some stuff up and allowing me to um, 
bounce this psychotic hobby I have of watching the US presidential election <laughs> off onto someone who actually gives a shit about it. Because I'll tell you what, in New Zealand, everyone's getting a little bit over it at this point. Well, at some point, we're going to need a full answer as to why you're doing this horrible thing to yourself. We can't do it now because you got to go on your way out. Tell everybody where they can find you and where they can find this um, if they want to get to an archive or, or a place can, where they can interact with the creators. Share it, share it with your friends. Share it with your loved ones. Um, even tell your enemies. Send them to us as well. We're on Facebook. Uh, if you go Yeah, to make politics, them look it up. Hey? Yeah, Make get your enemies to do all the Googling and researching that Jeb's been talking about the whole time. Um, we're on facebook.com slash politics, P-O-L-I-D-I-C-K-S. And if you use that same spelling and search us on iTunes, we'll come up. We're the one that's got the um, album art of a screaming pixelated Hillary Clinton and a screaming pixelated Trump um, in the front square there. And uh, I'm on Twitter Amen. as well, if you want to follow me, Tim underscore Bat, B-A-T-T. And for you, Jeb? I am at M-O-B-U-T-E, Mobute, on Twitter, or you can search Facebook for Jeb Lund's Word Salad. That's my writing page. Goodbye, everybody. Sort out your shit. (laughs) An incident in 1998 in Venezuela where you were accused of driving a getaway car from a murder scene. You were never charged with this. The judge in the case also said you threatened to kill him after he indicted your boyfriend for the attempted murder. I just want to give you a chance to address these reports that the Trump surrogates are talking about. He can say whatever he wants to say. I don't care. You know, I have my past. Of course, everybody has. And I'm not uh, a saint girl. But that is not a point now.